Welcome to episode number 21 of the Rockonomics Podcast, where we talk to folks in and around the music industry about their stories, the business, and other interesting minutiae. I'm your host, Dill, and today we have a very special guest, our first Grammy winner, the legendary producer Bill Simzik, whose incredible ear took him from Navy sonar operator during the Cuban Missile Crisis to in-demand producer of such notable hits as B.B. King's The Thrill Is Gone, the Eagles Hotel California, and the Who's Face Dances, just to name a few. And those recordings have gone on to sell literally over 100 million units worldwide. So there's a good chance Bill's name is in your house somewhere. We got together a few weeks before he was about to embark on a globe-trotting cruise, and our talk went a lot like this. Have you had have you had any major mistakes in your in your career that that are memorable? Oh God, yes, hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the worst one was early early on when I was just an engine. I was an engineer in uh, New York City, and I made the mistake of spilling a coke on a master reel of tape. Oh my gosh, that did not go well. <laughs> Were you Coca-Cola able to salvage eats, it or eats, eats, eats gonna, it away. I was going to say that the moisture's enough, but Coca-Cola's probably got that acidity oh, to yeah. it. And it's like, you know, when you use it to get rust off pipes, <laughs> well, it got oxide off tape big oh, time. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first major one. <laughs> Needless to say, that, that client never hired me again. <laughs> I wouldn't have either. <laughs> um, it's funny. I was rewatching some of the history of the Eagles. Where did they film you? Did they film you? That was at... Um, what was it Avatar in New York City? Okay. Yeah. And is that something? How does behind the scenes? How does that work? Somebody just their management calls you and says we need you for a couple of days. Well, right? yeah, it was it was uh, the, the Alex Gibney, the, the producer of the film and, and the director. He uh, well, Glenn and Don hired him to, right. to, to to do the 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 film, and I was the first one. I mean, I think it was because I was available and, and they were just getting underway. So they flew me up to New York, and it was just a you know, one-day thing, you know. Long day? Like uh, four, yeah, I was there from 10 to 4, Okay, something like that. And then I noticed in the credits, um, some of those photographs, some of the memorabilia, w- did you contribute? Yeah. And they again, the producer just approached you and says, do you have anything? Well, I, they called me up, you know, before coming up and said, right. do you have things like such and such and such and such and, and uh, outtakes and – Right. You know, that that whole thing. So I brought up uh, a bunch of outtakes that we call Soul Pole. <laughs> <laughs> Soul Pole Records is, uh, it was something I started way back in the early 70s when uh, I would run a two-track okay. all the time. I started it with the Jay Giles man because they were like six comedians disguised as a rock band. <laughs> so so I uh, we would always have like a you know, seven-and-a-half tape two-track running all the time. And I have locked some of it down, and there were some jams and things like that. And one night we had a uh, – when Joe Walsh and Barnstorm were in town, they were playing a gig. And so I threw a dinner for them and the Giles Band at some Chinese restaurant in New York City, House of Chan. And we all got fairly lit and went back to the studio and jammed for like three or four hours. And so I used those and some outtakes and stuff to put together a, an album for their Christmas present for everybody that was involved. Funny. And it became Soul Pole Records. <laughs> and that carried on through the Eagles, too. So was some of that used into yeah. the uh, – because I could tell some of the stuff that it right. was like, wow, you know, someone was – If uh, you look at the the box set, Selected Works, I think it's a four-CD box set that came out 
like 2001, two, something like that. There's a whole 10 minute segment, a, a cut called Random Victims Part Three. <laughs> and those are culled from. From all the uh, outtake soul pole stuff, I gotta check that out. And then when you can hear, I mean, even in, in, somebody will say something, or, or something will happen, and, and somebody else will say, "Well, that'll be on the next soul pole record." <laughs> <laughs> they knew I was doing it. <laughs> that's good stuff. So soul soul, soul pole, as in soul pole. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other funny thing too was uh, the towards the end of part one where they had the. They're fighting on stage. Right. And Joe says, and Simzik's got the whole thing recording. <laughs> so were you, be- were you at the I was sound- in the truck. Okay, you were in the yeah, truck. Yeah, that and- was Long Night at Wrong Beach. <laughs> <laughs> now, what, could the audience hear it or were they, they were s- step back like from their mics? Right. Yelling and bitching right, at each right. other. But I told Gibney, Alex Gibney, the director, I said, somewhere there's a reel. There's a, there's a multi-track reel where they're just fucking hammering each other and uh can i can i swear on this is this yeah, hbo yeah, or is this yeah, cbs no, this, is, this is hbo it's got the explicit uh okay. red e on it so anyway he he went back in into the stacks you know and they they obviously had uh freedom from warners to do you know to get what they needed so they went back and, and dug the tape up and actually you know put it in the in the in the film but it was it was so off mic that they had to sub, do the sub, subtitles. Right, right, right. <laughs> that was good stuff, though. I mean, that that, that was a really great documentary. Wait, like, very... you, I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> Not if I get you first. But then it's just the story goes. It never really ha- didn't he just uh, Don kind of jumped in a limo and took off and well he he came off stage first. Uh, Felder did, and smashed his acoustic. You know, talking to me, but you just he made a statement. And then he, yeah, he got in a limo and took off. Yeah, so, but all the rest of us did the same too. Probably a good thing. <laughs> um, I guess so. So let's circle back to your uh, your beginnings and how you got to be uh, a producer of uh, a couple hundred million albums that are now. Uh, <laughs> uh, where do you want to start? <laughs> out, out and about in the world. Um, I mean, we can skim over a, a couple of these things. I know um, you're originally from Michigan, right? Um, you grew up listening to an R&B station out of Nashville? Uh, Nashville, you, WLAC, Nashville, Tennessee. And you built a – what's it called? A crystal? Crystal set. Crystal, crystal radio set. What is that? A crystal radio set is just basically – a crystal is a receiver. Okay. And if you, and you wire it, you got one little tube and stuff like that. And But it's it, – each crystal is tuned to one frequency only. I mean it's not tunable. You can't – it's not like a radio. Okay. So this is like a little Heath kit build thing. So I built it, and I, you know, I finished it up, and I put the ear phone in, you know, one little phone, like the one and, earbud, <laughs> and nothing. I had nothing, and then there was an antenna on it, which was basically just a wire, you know. And the bare end, one night when I was fooling with it, struck stuck against my bed springs. Okay, and all of a sudden, blam! There's the blues is screaming into my little headphone. And it was WLAC in Nashville, Tennessee. I think it was 1410 on the dial or something like that. And that's how I discovered it. Isn't that really far from uh, Michigan? Yeah. Wow. But it was at night. I could get it at night, okay, not during so. the daytime. It was like it was a 50,000-watt clear channel station. Holy cow. And it was uh, John R., John Richburg, who sounded as black as this sweater. And was as white as he could be. <laughs> I met him years later and, and told him that you know he was responsible. <laughs> it's good to know. Good yeah, to, good to know that you got to uh, meet him. Um, so then you joined the Navy, right? 
and then serendipitously they test you for a bunch of stuff. Well, they you give you a certain test, but this was 1960, August of 1960, and we were in the height of the Cold War, and the Navy was in charge of finding nuclear Russian submarines. I mean, we were that was their main. They were so worried about that. There's a million Russian subs off the coast, and they're going to be you know. So they had to train sonarmen to find these subs. And sonar is based upon pitch variations mm-hmm. and, and, and able to recognize that, basically perfect pitch. So if you heard a, a sound, you know, a tone, and then you heard another tone, you had to ascertain whether it was flat, sharp, or the same. And so they gave everybody that was joining the Navy an audiometer test. And the top 5% were going to go to sonar school no matter what you, you, know, what you wanted to do. Right. That's where you were going. So I took the test. I was top five, and I went to sonar school. Was that? Uh, were you happy about that? I was like, "What sonar?" You know, I mean, <laughs> duh. You know, Seventeen years old. I didn't know. I didn't know sure. sonar from you know. Well, you're explaining it to me now. I'm fifty-one. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, there you go. Now, but I didn't know that then. So it was a year-long school. In day one, the uh, the instructor comes and he holds up a battery and he goes, "Electricity flows from positive to negative." Any questions? And a year later. We're putting together, maintaining, fixing a computer that took up like five rooms the, right, the right. size of this because it was all vacuum tubes. It wasn't transistors yet, mm-hmm. 1960. And this was like, you know, major, major electronic education crammed down our throats in a year. Where, um, where did you have to go for that? Uh, Key West, Florida. Okay. Well, now you have to understand this. This is October of 1960. And I had never been until I went into boot camp at, at the Great Lakes Naval Training Center in, in um, Wisconsin. I'd never been out of the state of Michigan. Right. So when they transferred me to Key West, Florida in October, I went, whoa, what's not to like? Yeah, I was gonna say, this, <laughs> I'm swimming half, on Christmas Day. <laughs> not half bad. No. It's a good deal. Um, so then did you do four years in the Navy? Three or seven months. I had a deal where if you join any time during your your 17th year, you could get out on your 21st birthday. Okay. Were you eager to get out? Um, yeah, at that point, after the three or seven months, yeah. I'd been hanging out in New York and, and knew that's where I wanted to, to you know go, New York City. Right. And was My New York ship was port- based out of Newport, Rhode Island. So okay. every weekend that I had liberty, that a bunch of us would you know, hop in a car and drive down to the city and hang out. And then how did you come to – you went to um, – you met with Jerry Ragavoy? No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm before, sorry. No, I skipped ahead. Yeah. It's uh, Dick Charles. Dick reporter. Charles, yeah. Right. It was through a friend of a friend of another friend who needed a, an electronics technician to fix gear in, in this studio, Dick Charles Recording Service. Uh, and, and it was just a mono-to-mono, two mono machines, mono-to-mono demo studio. Right. But the cool thing was that – the people that used it, the writers that used it to do their demos were all from Screen Gems, Alden Music, Donnie Kirshner's bunch. So the fir- very first day I was there, and I'm there as a maintenance guy, fixed gear. And the very first day the owner, Dick, said, well, why don't you just for the day go in the, in the control room and be a fly on the wall and see what we do here, you know, see what happens. So I go into, this, into the control room and I sit and you just try to blend into the wall and – it's a Carol King demo. Right. And Carol's playing piano. Jerry Goff and her husband's producing in the control room. And there's like a you know, guitar player, bass player, drummer, and stuff like that. And it was loud as hell. And it was like, whoa, 
this is really cool. <laughs> I can imagine. Now, did you know it was Carol King a name at that time, or was she more behind the scenes? She was behind the scenes, but I knew, I knew, knew of her. I knew that I had knew, known her from. I was a constant reader of you know liner notes and, right. and who wrote this, who produced that, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. So a lost art these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah really. <laughs> <laughs> what was that stream? <laughs> <laughs> so that eventually led to a seventy dollar a week job doing demos, right? For, yeah, for I mean, I, I, that's where I learned, started to learn my craft. I mean, it, it's even though, yeah, I was fixing gear, but right away I went, oh, I, I want to learn how to do that, you know, the engineer's job. Mm-hmm. So there was a guy named Artie Polhemus that was the head engineer, and he, 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 he was gracious enough to show me the basics and get me underway. Okay. And then how long were you there for? A couple of years? Oh, no, I was only there from February till I think like uh, September or October or something like that. And then the, I was there because a, a guy that had gone in, he, he was in the National Guard, and he had to do his six-month thing. So I was taking his place okay. with the understanding that when he got out, I was I was going to be let go. And so a month or so before I knew that was going to happen, uh, one of the songwriters that I'd done demos with, Helen Miller, she said, let me get, let me uh, talk to a guy that I know that has a, a four-track studio and, and, and a, a four-track and a demo studio and see if I can get you a job. And that was Regent Sound. Okay. And they were like full-on four-track, you know, state-of-the-art at the time studio. So he got I got hired there. As an engineer? As an engineer. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then you um, – gathering more experience, working with uh, – like what, what, what was that time like? That was – I I really learned my craft there because it was it was four track and and we were, it was a huge room we could do thirty six forty pieces mm-hmm. and so the first few dates I saw there were not little four piece demos you could have like five rhythm players you know you know guitar bass two guitars bass drums keyboard maybe an organ you know, mm-hmm. know four horns 10 12 strings background vocals lead vocal all at the same time I was gonna say how do you separate all the at the same time four track on four track <laughs> and so you, you learn your you learn your your trade pretty quick <laughs> now was any of that intimidating to you oh yeah the first time? few times I was shaken Are you kidding <laughs> because you don't have musical tr- training you, no you're, you're known no, for I'm, a good I'm, ear. I'm just I've always described myself as a professional listener okay I don't, you know, I'm not drawn to any one thing. I'm drawn to the record itself. Right, and it's pretty. You pick up the lingo pretty quick, just to communicate. Osmosis. With, yeah. Yeah, a lot of that. Fifty years worth. <laughs> um. So, what, what comes next after that? I started working. Well, a lot of R&B dates at night, and I would be working with like like Quincy Jones was a staff producer at uh, Mercury Records then, and I did some sessions with him. Engineered some sessions for him. Juggy Murray was Sue Records, and that was like Ike and Tina Turner and things like that. Okay. Engineered some stuff like that. And the most important one was Jerry Ragavoy, who was working. He was the head of uh, Loma Records, which was a Warner Brothers R&B subsidiary. And I started doing a lot of work with him, engineering his records. And at one point he said, I'm going to build my own studio. I want you to be my engineer and come with me. And at the time, I was freelancing, and I was I was doing pretty good. I was making about a grand a week, working right. my ass off, but, but making about a grand a week in 1968, whatever, seven. And uh, I went with him, and, he, and we started the Hit Factory. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. That was the very first That's a very, Hit uh, Factory. Seminal uh, yeah. studio. Mm-hmm. Um, of, all the, of all these 
people that you started working for, who would you consider your mentor? The engineering, men, en, the engineering mentor was Bob Lifton, the, the head of uh, Regent Sound, and he's the one that really took me under his wing and really showed me how to you know, make master recordings, four-track, and, and d- deal with these 36-piece dates. Right. And the one that really taught me producing is Jerry Ragavoy. I watched how he would deal with musicians, arrangers, how he would go, pr- just go about producing a session and getting, getting what he, the results that he wanted. Right. So he was invaluable to me. So at this point, are you producing on the side, or did you have a to little bit m- here and there? I've co- everybody, you know, when you're an engineer, you want to, or anything, you're gonna, I'm gonna produce, you know. Right. So you're making little, you know, after after work after uh, demos stuff. and this and that and the other thing, and then every now and then we'd do something and sell it for five hundred bucks or something like that. So was it? Um, when you jumped over to ABC Records, ABC, yeah, ABC Paramount. Yeah. Okay, and that's that's when you um, were able to persuade them to give you a chance to produce, well, produce, but also produce BB King. Right. Yeah. That when I first went to, I was hired at ABC as a staff producer in 1968, and 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 was you know I was assigned things, acts that were already signed to the label that before I got there. Like, for instance, the Ford Theater. Go make an album with this band. They're under contract. Uh, or the, the occasions or this or that or the other thing. And, you know, and, and that was my job. And, but I looked at the roster, and there's B.B. King. And I said, I said to Larry Newton, the head of the, head of the label, I said, I really want to produce B.B. King. And he said, well, you can't. <laughs> well, why not? He said, well, you're too young and you're too white. And I told him, there ain't nothing I can do about that, but I still want to produce B.B. King. <laughs> so I bugged him for, and two or three other people that were the higher-ups, for a good three, four months. And they finally acquiesced and said, uh, well, B.B.'s coming to town in a week or so. We'll, we'll set up a meeting with you and him. And if he, he says it's okay, then we'll let you do it. So that, we'd, that happened, set up a meeting. And I, was, I had an idea about how to produce him. And I pitched my idea to him that I wanted to use session guys that I knew were energetic and could really push him mm-hmm. and instead of his, his road band, which would basically play the same thing constantly. They'd make the same record over and over again, and I wanted to take you know bump it up a, a, right. a notch or two. So I pitched him on that idea, and he said, well, that sounds interesting. He said, but for initially – how about we do half my way and half half of my band and half your way? And I said, okay. So that became live and well. Okay. The live album was, or the live portion of the album, side A, was his band at the Village Gate. All right. And uh, and then the the well portion was uh, my musicians that I picked in in the studio. In studio. Okay. And uh, that that garnered a big R and B hit called Why I Sing the Blues. Mm-hmm. And which actually made the pop charts, and like it was like top ten R and B, and it was I think it made up to like sixty seventy or something like that on the right. on the actual Hot 100, and that's the first time B had ever been on the Hot 100, so it was like oh maybe this guy doesn't know what he's doing, <laughs> so the next album was completely well, and that was all my band you know, and that that gave us uh, the thrill is gone right. Now, what were your goals? What are your goals at this time? Did you want to, you know, I just want to hear a song on the radio. Do you want a number one hit? Do you want a gold record? Well, the first thing was like, yeah, the first time I ever heard anything that I produced on the radio, why I sing the blues, okay. it was like, 
I made it. Yeah, it's yes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Retirement, here I come. <laughs> yeah, right. Sure. <laughs> it was a it was a thrill, of course. I bet. And then uh, and then when the thrill the thrill is gone, came out and and that got up to like top fifteen pop and you know number one R and B and and later on it won him a Grammy for best R and B record of the year. So that must have opened a lot of doors at uh, the yeah. time. Yeah, that that's. Shortly after that, ABC closed their New York office, and they moved two people. They hopped, they fired eighty people, and they moved two people to L.A. and And that was me and the guy that hired me. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> so now we're working. At, now it was ABC Dunhill Records in okay. in uh, in La, in Los Angeles, and my boss was uh, Jay Lasker then. So at that point, I had also. After I after I'd done BB and they, I said, well, I want to sign a band, and so I went through friend another friend of mine that lived, was uh, living in Cleveland, who used to be a roommate of mine in New York City. He was running a he was running a rock club in Cleveland, and he said, you ought to come in here, man. There's like five or six bands coming through here that are killer, and one of them was the James Gang. So I, I saw them, signed them, and then so we're having hits on the on the FM radio side with the James Gang, you right. know, very progressive rock stuff, underground rock they called it at the time. Okay, and uh, and then BB King on the pop charts and R and B. So I was pretty cool at that point. <laughs> <laughs> but um, is it true your your stint in LA didn't last long? It was it- a year. Uh, one year, thirteen months and, and ten days. <laughs> and it was it because of an earthquake? Or earthquake, was, yeah. Okay. There was the uh, Silmar earthquake in February, February ninth, nineteen seventy one, six oh one a.m. <laughs> so funny. What did you throw you out of the bed? And yep. you're like, me out. I'd been in the studio till about two. Didn't get to bed till about four. And we had a. I, I just bought a house with my first royalty check, and I we hadn't been in the house more than three months. If that, and I found myself on the floor, and and we were on the top of Nichols Canyon, which is in, overlooking the valley, okay. San Fernando Valley, and I, I I woke I woke up. I'm on the floor, and there's blue flashes happening all over the the valley, and all of a sudden all the lights go out. It was like, what? The Japanese are here again. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? You know. Then right away I figured out earthquake. And it did not register with me or my wife at the time. And, and 10 days later, we lived in Denver. Now, why Denver? Uh, prior to that, there were four of us in the, in the label. Myself, Larry Ray, who was in promotion, Dennis Laventhal, who was in uh, sales, and Joel Sill, who was in publishing. And the four of us were going to start a label. We, okay. were, you know, we were talking it up. You know, Everybody was starting labels then. So we figured we had it covered. So after the earthquake, we, we took a vote, and only two of us were ready to do that, quit and move, right. and that was Larry Ray and myself. And, and so he, he was originally from Denver, and his wife was from Denver. I had been to Denver three or four times on uh, promotion trips and things like that. Okay. So it was like, oh, okay, let's go there. Now, was there, <laughs> was there any, any fear that you're kind of off the grid or you're not where, you know, New York, L.A., Chicago, Miami. No, I don't. I don't know if there was any fear. It was. Uh, it, it was a little bit of fear of the unknown because, well, no job, right? You know, and and Larry was the business guy, so he was in charge of hustling up the money for this thing, and eventually he did. 
after about eight months, we started Tumbleweed Records, which was distributed by uh, Famous Music, which we immediately dubbed Infamous Music. (laughs) (laughs) They were horrible. (laughs) I don't recall that label. (laughs) Um, And then did you – what did you do out of the gate? Did you work with Joe Walsh? I had been working with Joe anyway, you know, because, I mean, James Gang. And Mm -hmm. when when I moved to Denver – the James Gang came through, oh, maybe six months after I moved there. And Joe and I went out and got righteously drunk after the gig, and he said he's thinking about leaving the James Gang and starting his own, you know, starting a solo career. And I said, well, why don't you move here? So eventually he did, and we did. Okay. Now, what, did you want to sign him also to the, your fledging label at the time? Oh, no, no, no. I, no. He was already signed to okay, ABC. So, you know, okay. I, couldn't, I couldn't. So he was under contract. Him. Yeah, he was already under contract. Okay. So. So you could record them. Right. Um, when did Caribou Ranch happen? 72, Jimmy Gersio was just finishing it up. And we went, Joe, it's funny, Joe moved to Nederland, Colorado, which is at 8,000 feet up above Boulder. And Jimmy's ranch was just like three miles down the road. But he didn't know that at the time. So we started hearing rumors that there was, you know, Jim Garcia, who I knew who he was. We'd never met, but I knew very well who he was because of the Chicago records and the, you know, the Buckinghams and everything that he'd done. And uh, so we, Joe and I went over to introduce ourselves. And the studio, like I said, was, well, it's in the second floor of a barn. The first floor was still dirt, still dirt floor, stalls, you know, for horses right. and stuff like that. And the second floor, you walk up and it was like the most modern studio you could you could imagine. And he said, yeah, I see. I said, well, when can we, when can we use it? You know, and he goes, well, I'm probably not for a few months because I'm going to go off and make this movie. And, and, and I'm not going to finish it until I come back. And, and we begged and pleaded him, well, just get a temporary board and a couple of mics and this and that, you know. So he actually did. He got a like a little M, a MCI 400 series board, cheap little board, but mm-hmm. but good, and a 16 track machine. And and he went off to make his movie and left the studio in our hands. <laughs> um, did you also record uh, Rick Derringer there? Yes, because you guys had a hit. You had Hoochie, uh, Rock and Roll Rock Hoochie, Hoochie, Hoochie Coo. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. The first record ever done at Caribou was Barnstorm. Joe Walsh's mm-hmm. Barnstorm. And then right after that, we did The Smoker You Drink, The Player You Get. That had Rocky Mountain Way on it. And then I did the, the Derringer album, All-American Boy. And I did I did mixed a few things. I mixed a Giles record up there, a Jay Giles band record. I did some overdubs on uh, Jay Ferguson, some Jay right. Ferguson stuff. And then shortly after that, Jimmy came back, and he booked the studio constantly. I guess it was okay. It was his studio, <laughs> you know. And there was no room, and so I found myself back on airplanes every Monday <laughs> going to New York or L.A., so where did you – did you eventually move to Miami from Denver? To Miami, Denver? right. Okay. From Denver, yeah. I, I had – I'd had it after about two years of, of never being home. Right. And I said, i got to move to someplace where there's a studio. And a good friend of mine was Tom Dowd, who I knew from New York City way back in the, in the day. And I called him up, and he was living in Miami and working at Criteria and said, come on down. He said, this is, this is fantastic. You know, the studio's great. So I went down there and uh, – Mac Emmerman, who owned Criteria, said he'd take t- – well, there was one studio that was 24-track, but two studios were 24-track, and one was 16-track. And the two 24s were pretty much booked 
with Atlantic stuff with Tom Dowd mm-hmm. and with the Bee Gees. They were there. Okay. So I said, well, I'll take over Studio C if you upgrade it to 24-track and put Dolby's in it. That's, that was what I was using at, at that time. So Mac did that, and I just moved in. And it was that was my studio for like three years. <laughs> what were some of the first projects that came through there for you? Um, I did a Wishbone Ash album. There's the rub. I did a Michael Stanley band, two albums with him. I did, uh, you see, half of one of these nights, the Eagles, half of Hotel California, okay. the albums. Right. So I was all all through those periods that, that I was using that studio constantly. When did you? When was this? When did you move to Miami? Was it like nineteen seventy four. Seventy four. Mm-hmm. Okay. So right, one of these nights. Um, Another hit that came, I think, came through around that time was Alvin Bishop. Yeah, fool around. That's right. Love. I forgot. <laughs> yeah, right. Mickey Thomas, right? Mickey he's Thomas on, is a, yeah, he's still a good friend of mine. Yeah, it's a great song. I meant to, I meant to look up how high that went up the charts. I can remember hearing that. Yeah, on the radio driving. I think it was in the teens. Vacations. Yeah. <laughs> um. So now, I, I guess you, you you breach the subject of the Eagles. You and you got involved with the Eagles through. Uh, was it through Joe? Through Joe. Yeah. Joe was managed by Irving. A. Well, actually, it wasn't Irving. A. It was uh, Geffen and Roberts. Okay. And and the Eagles were, in, were managed by Geffen and Roberts. And Irving was working for Geffen and Roberts as, as a, a manager. And, and Joe, the Eagles had done their first two records, and they were unhappy with the, the way that the, the third record was coming out. And they wanted to change producers because they wanted a more rock sound. And Joe first said to me, you ought to meet with them. You ought to meet with them. I said, I don't want to meet with them. They're cowboys. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm making rock records. And he goes, no, 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 they want to rock really, really. And I said, oh, okay, well, I'll meet with them. So we sat down and had a dinner, and uh, they peppered me with questions. I peppered them with questions. And I guess we all had the right answers because 10 days later we were in the studio. <laughs> and and that, was, that was to finish up On the Border, correct? Well, I was actually we, – we did all – I did all of On the Border except for two tracks that they okay. kept from the, from the previous Glenn John sessions. Right, okay. They kept Best of My Love and they kept uh, You Never Cry Like a Lover. And I did all the rest. Okay. Um, so then comes one of these nights and then comes – Hotel the <laughs> <laughs> I guess before we get into that, there's there's some business things that I'm always curious about that I, I don't quite understand, um, and that's like you know how do you price these? How's the session priced out? Like does a band come in and a record label gives them a budget? Yes, and then usually, I mean, if you're if you're a new artist and and they they don't you don't have a track record, and if but you get signed to a label. They'll give you a budget, and you have to, however you can, you know, however you want to allocate your money, spend your money as a producer. You you have to come in under that budget, hopefully. Okay, so as you as the producer, pretty much has to. Okay, you yeah. got to keep your eye. So on So you got to know. Got to keep your yeah. eye on their budget, right? And you got to keep your eye on the clock. And like, I only got X amount of days to do whatever I need to get right. done. But after a while, like when when I was with the Eagles. You know, album number three, and they had a reputation, and I, I probably did have a budget on on the border, but at that time it, it, they'd already spent a bunch of money in England, right, on the same project. So it was almost like I, I started over, and I don't even remember to be honest with you what the budget was, but we got it done in like two weeks. My my portion, two <laughs> weeks at, at most, 
I mean, at least two weeks, maybe three with a mix and everything. But then when we were doing, and that was, you know, the record was was a big hit. Right. And so when we started uh, one of these nights, there was no more budget anymore. I mean, you know, we go ahead, spend what you need. Do whatever you do, just give us the, give the, us give another, us the album. Give us another hit. Yeah, right. Um, do you have an agent representing you or management or no, a lawyer? No, Irving Azoff pretty much has been my semi-non-official manager. <laughs> and are you getting uh, like an all-in fee or, you know, how are you? Early on I would get an advance on my royalties and then a, and then a, a royalty based on retail price, like three, three, two and a half to three percent of, re, of retail. Okay. That's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and did you have bonuses for like – a gold record, a platinum record. Right. A, yeah, you'd maybe go up a half point. I guess, like you know, from a from a million on. Okay. Something like that. So you're doing okay. I'm doing all right. <laughs> I have no complaints. <laughs> all right. Well, let's uh, let's dive into Hotel California, which I you know, I've, I've read a lot about. It's actually a lot of stuff out there. It's the 40th anniversary. Right. Um, See, they I, released it again. Hey, <laughs> sell it again. <laughs> and I heard you describe it as it was a big jigsaw puzzle because the, they they didn't have a whole lot written before you guys started. I, rem- I think they had one completed song when we when we gathered together in L.A. to start the next album, which would be Hotel California. They had one song that was done, right. and that was Try and Love Again, Okay, <clears throat> the Randy Meisner song. Right. And they had bits and pieces. They had, I got this riff, I got this riff, you know, and I got maybe a verse and so on. So that's when the whole build it in the studio right. started. So it, the, that was my next question. This, it does, you are building in the studio or you're, or you're building in it a rehearsal space? Well, we had a, maybe or? about 10 days of rehearsal. And in the, in the process, we, we managed to come up with, I think, maybe three or four more tracks that were that had a verse or a chorus, but the lyrics weren't finished. So, okay. but so we would go in and record the track, and and then Henley and Fry or whoever was writing it would would finish the lyrics and then you know to the completed track. Okay, do you remember what, what were the first couple of tracks that you guys? Try and Love Again was probably the first one because it was the only one that was totally done. <laughs> what, where was uh, Hotel California in, in the sequence? Like, was, that, uh, was that? It was well. We the actual cut Hotel California. We did three different takes of. It started with a twelve-string riff that Felder brought in, and and we built up. We built a track around this twelve-string thing. There was no lyrics whatsoever. As a matter of fact, we called it Mexican Reggae. Right. That was its its uh, working title, and and uh, the first time we did it, I forget if it was in the wrong key or or too fast. One of the two. So we, I think it was in the wrong key, and so we did it again in the right key. Now this is after Henley's gotten a, a handle on maybe a, a melody. Melody. You know. So then we did it in the right key, but it was too fast. Because more, the more the lyrics came together, and then he was going, I can't fit all this in here. i got a lot to say. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. You know, so we had to do it again the third time, and the third time's the charm. And that's the one that's, that's the, uh, the hit today. It, it, I find it so interesting like that sometimes you know, you've got the track down, but then the melody comes later, the lyrics come later, and you're, you're privy to, to that. I mean, does it, 
I'm sure it, it builds, but are there some days that they come in from a, a couple of days off and, and be like, all right, I got, I got the, here are the lyrics mm-hmm. or here's the, you know, and yeah. you, you're reacting to it? Yeah. You know, f- first of all, thank God it's done. Yeah. I mean, did the song, you know, now can we right. record the vocals in the backgrounds and get on with it and, and move on, you know? Um, and I guess part of the, uh, the doc last night, the reason I was asking if, if um, Hotel California was one of the earlier tracks done because it seemed to inform kind of the rest of the album in terms I think of it was, kind of was I think the one that is that is the third time was near the end near the okay. end of this of the whole recording process even though it was always in, I mean the first track of it was probably in the first you know couple months of recording mm-hmm. but then then like I said we did it three times and the third time was near the end of the whole deal right. I think the only track that was finished even later than that was the last resort mm-hmm. and those two would have been the the laggards coming in last at the end of the game okay and you've you've been known to say one of your favorite times in the studio was doing the outro with, with yeah uh, Don all Felder. the all the ele- not just the outro but all the electric guitars on there and that was like a three or four day it was a three day three day project. three days eight hours each day I would just I sit in the control room and then I had Felder on one side and Walsh on the other side, and they'd run their lines out to the amps out in the studio, and we would you know just the three of us would bang this out. It's amazing. If I did this line, if I did this line, then you could do that line, and I could answer you with this, and then we could harmonize that, and da da da, and you know, and back and forth and back and forth, and slowly work our way throughout the whole song. And the ending was like, phew, like I said. Big, one of the biggest highlights of my life. So let me ask you: the ending is a fade out. So did you have to retell or anything after they after they did their parts? Did you then have to redo anybody else's part to fit any of no. what they were doing? No, no, no. everything else but was done prior to that. Was kind of yeah, okay, laid down. Even the lyric. I mean, even the, I think the vocal was done at that. It was point. Done. If not, it was it was it was written and, and there was a dummy vocal on there. If the if the real vocal wasn't wasn't on the track when we right. did the guitars. Right. Um, what are, are there any other personal highlights of yours on that album, that just in terms of songs? Um, Take It to the Limit. I had a lot to do with that arrangement, it, it, the, uh, and I based it on Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. <laughs> just a, an R&B classic. Right. To, you know, the, all the, the breakdown and, and build-ups and the fade, the breakdown and build-ups and the fade, that was, that was all from me. Was that on? You said take it to the limit. Yeah. Is that on? It might have been on one of these nights. Yeah. Yeah. It was on an earlier album. Yeah. Um, they all run together. <laughs> <laughs> what about uh, also being privy to like the album concept coming together, the artwork? You know, are you are you privy I, to I see any of that? Nothing to do or, with it. I know you may not have anything to do with it, but does it come through the studio or is somebody delivering like a, a press proof of the 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 artwork or the photography or anything at all? Just like, I don't remember. Seeing of, anything, okay, art wise. I mean, Henley was in charge of that pretty much. Okay, and I don't. I, to be honest, I don't remember seeing anything while we were making the record. It was after we were finished, and I'd be out in L.A. or someplace, you know, and, and then somebody'd say, "Well, come and see the cover," you know. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> I just, I, I just find it very interesting. Like when it, it, like an album, especially for Hotel California, it's such a cohesive piece you uh-huh. know thematically and, and this and that but um are there any other times where you're seeing kind of the finished product and kind of questioning 
some of the decisions, I guess. Either photography or artwork or, you know, who knows what it may be. Not artwork-wise. I, okay. I mean, I, like I said, I, I, I have no... I have no say. True, <laughs> so, true. So, I, so actually, I have no opinion. Okay. <laughs> um, and then skipping forty years later to the uh, the re-release, um, did you remaster that, or did what kind of what kind of role do you play in the? the um, I didn't play hardly any role in that. But, but other, I mean, as far as happening now. But the extras, they were desperately looking for extras, you know. Right. And the only thing they could come up with was uh, a live show from the Forum in L.A. that had never been released. And okay. It, but actually, four or five of the cuts on the on the original Eagles live album, the big red one, mm-hmm. were from that same show. Okay. So they went and got five or six tracks from that. And... Um, they, they mixed them, and somebody remastered it, and there you have it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But the 5.1 surround sound version, which is in the, the box set 40th anniversary thing, I did mix that. But that was back in, like, 2001 or two. And how do you approach that when you're, when you're, you're essentially taking something you've worked before? Are you just trying to stay true to what it was? Somewhat. Or? Or but take care of you know take advantage of modern of, technology. What, what, what my what my uh, modus operandi when I was doing that was everybody's used to here it is left to right and center, and I want to put you in the middle right. of the band. Excuse me, and there would be like maybe a wall of acoustics in the back, and then the electrics in the front or whatever you know. Just I just try to put the listener in the middle of the band. Okay. And does new technology help you do that from what you had, you know, prior? Yeah, the fact that you're, you've got like four more channels. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. So uh, moving on, I guess 1978 you did uh, But Seriously, Folks, with Joe. Right. Um, and that was called Recess from the Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> well, Let's all, go have it, some fun. It sounds like a good time because you, you took 10 days to rehearse in the Keys. Right. Is that correct? Right. We rented a 82-foot uh, uh, yacht, motor yacht, and I put a four-track on it, you know, and a, and a board, you know, and, and we the four, the four guys in the band and myself and my assistant went out down on the Keys and rehearsed for <laughs> – about a, I think about a week, maybe okay. eight days. And then did you take that back to – were you still living in Miami at yeah. the time? Was that recorded? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This, okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and he By had that a- time, I had my own studio. I built Bayshore Recording. Okay. That's where the long run was done and where the series of folks was done and things like that. Okay. Um, did you also do Jay Ferguson's uh, album around that time? Yeah. I forget. He had a couple of FM hits. Yeah. Um, Thunder the, Island and Thunder Shakedown. Island and um, Shakedown Cruise. Shakedown Cruise. Yeah, yeah. those are great mm-hmm. songs. Um, okay, let's move on to the long, the long one. Is the I, long I one? Heard you. <laughs> Eighteen months. <laughs> now, now back to you know how the business works. Did you did you have to either did you have anything else on the docket like oh I'm going to do the long run and then I'm going to do this you know twelve months from now which you now cannot do because the long run goes eighteen months long. Um, I, I considered the Eagles my, a full-time job at that okay, point. Okay, so it's you – that was, was your – and, and if people would approach me, you want to do so-and-so, you want to do so-and-so, I would, I would listen and I'd go, I'd love to, but right. I can't quit my day job, you know. 
So it was until until I saw the uh, the end. You know, if I'm mixing something, I know okay. Then maybe in about a month or so, I might be able to be free to do something. <laughs> and was that uh, a similar case where the I mean, is the jigsaw puzzle just that much bigger now, or what was the? Yes, and the, there were more <laughs> leftover parts. <laughs> <laughs> but originally, they were saying they wanted to do a, a double album. Right. This was this is when they're, the Eagles are in the height of their competition with Fleetwood Mac. Okay. And and they're they're coming off rumors were coming off the Hotel California. They if they stated right out of the gate that they're going to do a double album, which wound up to be Tusk. Tusk, right? And so of course, well we got to do a double album. How many songs you got? None. <laughs> <laughs> so we started doing tracks and tracks and tracks. At one point we had 17 tracks that were in one state or another of, of finished. Right. You know, no lyrics, just tracks. And eventually, the reality hit, and it was a single album. <laughs> they could not write that, a, a double album. It would, have, it, would, it would have taken three years to do that. Now, at the time, is there any? I know they're at the – you can't get any higher than them in terms of their career. So they, it's not like they have a lot of – Yeah, I'm sure they had record company pressure. But is anybody – you know, trying to take you aside and say, you know, Bill, when is this thing going to be? You know, they're telling me two months. What is it really? Is it going to be two months? Is it going to be three months? No, I. The, the record company would deal with Irving. Okay. And, and, and Irving would keep the record company off our back. But I mean, there was one point there where they were. I think it was during. Uh, I think it was during Hotel California, where they were bugging us so much. So Hanley just came in one day and said, "Let's give him a Christmas single." And just get them off our back. Right. So we gave them, we gave them uh, please, please Come, come home, home for Christmas and a funny little New Year's tune on the back, Funky New Year. Oh, right, right. It was, it was really funny. <laughs> and uh, so we knocked that out in about three days. That's good. And sent it to him <laughs> yeah. and said, now can we go back to work? <laughs> uh, what are the highlights for you on that album? On? On the long run. The long run? That's actually, in many ways, my favorite Eagles album that I did. Because it was so freaking hard to do, the band was at each other's throats pretty much mm-hmm. constantly. It was the beginning of the end, um, and uh, it was it was it was a rough job to to get get it done. And I'm proud of what happened. And, and some of my, for instance, my favorite two songs on there are "Those Shoes" and "Disco Strangler." All right. And I mean, those are just out of, way off the. The, the, the reservation for sure. an Eagles record, both of them. And that's what I loved about it. And I, for, for instance, told Henley on those shoes, I want to put tune bongos on here. And he goes, what's tune bongos? And it's it's a, almost looks like a, a marimba, except it's round heads and varying lengths of, of uh, tubing beneath it. Okay. And that's the do-do-do-do. Do 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 okay. do 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 do. You know, and it was and, and Henley played it, and it was great. That's funny. That's one of the song that was sampled by the Beastie Boys on their, uh, I think their second album. Oh, okay. Those shoes. I was I was not familiar with that. that. <laughs> I mean, knowing the Eagles, they they got paid for it. Oh, <laughs> damn right. <laughs> um, how did? How did In the City come about? Because was that recorded once already for the Warriors? That had movie been done soundtrack? for the Warriors. Joe did that on his own. Well, actually, with a guy named Barry Devorzon, who I think he wrote it with. Okay. And, and Barry Devorzon was either the 
musical director of the of the film The Warriors, or I mean, he was heavily involved in it, and he knew Joe, and and he produced the first in the city for that soundtrack. And Joe was in a writer's block state when we were doing the long run, mm-hmm. and so it was decided. Well, we'll just do a redo of that. Okay. And you know, make it more eagerly and less movie soundtracky. And this was also was this Timothy B. Schmidt's first yes. recording with mm-hmm. Dan? Yeah, the the album, yeah. Okay. Um yeah, his his ballad that that the outro solo is really great. Is that Joe? No, that's Felder. Doodle doodle do yeah. that thing. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Simple but really yeah. beautiful. Yeah, that's Felder. Okay. Um I think Joe played organ on that. So you ended up with your first Grammy from the long run? No, Hotel California. Oh, that's where you got Record yeah, of the Year. Record of the Year. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. My um, one and only. <laughs> it's funny because I thought it was. I thought. I thought when he spoke earlier, you said it was long run. I was like, how did? How did you? And I know you guys won Record of the Year for Hotel California. Right. Like, how does the producer not get a Grammy for Record of the Year? Oh yeah. Oh, well, that's good news. <laughs> um, and also, they did that. So there was you didn't get to enjoy that experience in terms of like getting a tux, going to the ceremony, going to I the Grammys. I was supposed to. I, w- I was designated. They they had a they had a hate on for the grant for the Neris or whatever, and, right. and they said, "Okay, Simzik, you go and you you accept for us or whatever." And I said, "Fine, that'll be great. I'll do that." You know, and I had reservations and everything. And four days before the Grammy, my dad died. Oh no. And uh, I had to go to Michigan and, and, uh, and, you know, go to the funeral and take care of business and stuff like that. So literally the day of his funeral, that night was the Grammys. Oh, my gosh. And, and I'm up for like four, you know, producer of the year, engineer, record of the year, album of the year, and yada, yada. It's a train. Oh, it's by one of those uh, those push ones. Yeah, <laughs> those hand cranked. Anyway, uh, uh, so I was up for like four, and my, I'm there with my my you know my mom and, and my family, and we're all in her TV room basement in Michigan, and I lose producer of the year, I lose engineer, and I lose album of the year, and so the very last one is record of the year. And and, the, and it came up. Andy Williams was the MC, <laughs> and he goes. And the winner is the Eagles, and, <laughs> and he didn't even try. <laughs> so anyway, the whole room lifted up. It was like finally we got some you know something good happened today. So let's go to the bar. We all went out to the bar, and got shit faced. <laughs> who do you remember? Who won producer of the year? Peter Asher, I think. For what album? I think Linda or maybe James, James or Linda. It was either him or or the guys that did Rumors, Colette and okay. I forget what the other guy's name is. It wasn't me. Damn it! <laughs> oh, you got you got yours. I got one. I was nominated six times all told. I only made one. <laughs> okay, one more than me. But I'm okay. <laughs> Um, all it's right. all good, folks. Let, let's <laughs> let's continue this path of uh, uh, pain points and go to 1981, where you 
worked with the Who on face dances. Oi. I guess coming out of that, I, and I know you had you had a 1980. You did against the wind of Bob Seger, right? Great that was, album, that was, fantastic that album, was fun to do. Did, right. did that save you? I mean, coming off of 18 months in the long run, and then uh, face dances, which I know was not a pleasant experience. Were you ever losing faith in like in your joy for the job? Uh, not really. No, I mean, it, I, it, it got with the Who. It, it was really hard. They, I mean, everybody hated everybody. I thought the Eagles were had <laughs> hate on for each other, and they were kindergarten compared to the Who. <laughs> and uh, and Pete was in a really rough state at the time, and just trying to drag that album out of them. Was, I mean, and, and I listen to that album now, and I go, "Geez, I would have loved to have remixed that again." You know, I'm, I'm not happy with it. Right, and it was just it was, but at that point it was like I just want to get this damn thing done. It's funny because my generation, it's I feel like that's I'm sorry, my I know my generation say who song. Yeah, my personal when I grew up in my sweet spot, right. 1982, that was a big album for me. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I look back on that album and it definitely puts me in a place in my life, and it's a I, I love the music on it, but I understand the context. You better your bet. Right? Yeah, <laughs> I understand the context that yeah. you're in, but you worked well with. Pete, correct? You guys- Pete was the one that, that that got me in there. I mean, Pete, Pete and Joe Walsh are, are good friends, and 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 Pete asked Joe. He said, "You think Bill would give you a ask him? Go ahead." You know, <laughs> so he asked me. I said, "Yeah, I'd love to." Not knowing, you know, the inner inner workings of how how, how much everybody hated each other. <laughs> It's also so I said, the first, like day one when I'm over there, I said to Roger, I want you to come in when we're cutting tracks. Oh, no, I'm not coming in. I'll come in when it's time to sing. And so when he came in, after the tracks were all done, you know, Pete would have to sing the, the dummy vocals right. so everybody know what the hell's going on. And then and then uh, Roger would come in to sing, and the band would never show up. They'd go, nah, I ain't going there. Wow. It's funny because they seem like a band, I guess, back when they had Keith Moon, as everyone was a lead player. Yeah, you know, and Twistle's very. Oh yeah, he and I went head to head many times. I said, "I want you to be a bass player on this one." So you want him to tone it down? Yeah, play in the pocket. I said, of it. "We already got a great guitar player. We don't need another one." And was I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I felt like Pete liked working with Kenny Jones because Kenny Jones would kind of sit back. He would he would play be a to drummer. the song, right? Yeah, is that true? Yeah. Okay, I would think so, especially for those songs. <laughs> I couldn't. I, I felt like I heard it before, and I couldn't find verification. No, no, no. They're, they're, I think Pete did enjoy that. I know Roger hated him. Roger, Roger blamed, didn't like. Bl- Roger I- blamed the album. Everybody considered a, the album a failure amongst the band and in my and myself. And Pete blamed himself for the songs, even though that's ridiculous. Some of the songs were, were astounding. Right. Roger blamed Kenny Jones and me. And we'll still blame me. And uh, so, there, you know, we're the new guys. We get blamed. <laughs> <laughs> That's the job. That's the job. Was it a long process, that, that album? That was – it was a six month, but it was spaced out over a year with some touring in between. Okay. Um, so let's continue. To, let's, let's skip a couple decades. I think uh, more in the 80s, you did uh, some Santana. Right. You did Dishwalla. Um, Brian Vander Ark. How'd you mm-hmm. meet Brian Vander Ark? Um, he was he was in a band called the Verve Pipe, right. which I which I really liked. And then uh, they broke up, and and I got a solo album of his, uh, the very first solo album that he made. And then he came and he played at the Evening Muse here one time. So I'm going to go see this guy. So I went down and introduced myself, and 
and you know just saw him a couple three more times and became a fan and and at one point i know what i know what happened and and uh he was getting ready to make another record and uh see how i think lisi my wife went to see him at a show here in 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 town and she said bill would would really like to work with you but he just you know he hasn't asked and and Brian said, well, I, I wouldn't ever be as presumptuous to ask if he would do that. You know, so she was the one that kind of got us together. Right. And uh, it overcame the, well, he'll never ask. If he doesn't ask, I'm not going to say, hey, I want to, you know, and vice versa. Right. So so that's, my wife got that got us together, if you will. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to talk to him. He, I like I like the fact he's kind of the pioneer of the uh, the living room shows. Right. In the Lawn chairs and living rooms. What do they call it? Lawn that's what he calls it. Lawn chairs yeah. and living rooms. Great, very interesting stuff. Um, let's skip to uh, the Eagles reunion. Now, you, you produced the, the Long Road Out of Eden, correct? I had I was one of five. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I started. I started with that. I got a call like early 2001. Yeah, it would be 2001. From Glenn, Don, and Irving. And they said, we have two pieces of news. Number one, we fired Felder. Number two, we want to bring you back. And I went, fabulous. And so, I, you know, we started. And initially, it was it was all good. It was everybody all for one, one for all, pretty much like back to the on-the-border days. And the first few months were like that. And slowly but surely, it became more, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. And uh, there's another you know case of stack up a bunch of, great tracks and where's the lyrics right you know so that that went on for like a year on and off not constantly and then uh and then they just put it on the shelf and it started touring and stuff like that and then after after a while they just kind of went everybody go to your own room you know henley went to his studio and finished his songs Fry went to his studio and finished his songs, and and you know so there wound up to be I think five producers. Okay. It's me. It's 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 produced by the Eagles, associate producers, me, Richard Davis who worked with Glenn, um, see Scott Crago the drummer, uh, Stuart Smith worked with Henley. He's he's the guy that took Felder's place. Okay. He, he's an incredible musician. Play, if it has strings on it, he, he'll know how to play it. And he helped. So I think those... So there's like five of us that were... Okay. And, associate producers. And aside from Joe Walsh, you never worked with any of them on their solo stuff? No. You? Okay. Um, we'll wrap it up in a minute and go with the, the my final five questions. But before we get there, just a couple more questions. Um... Was there ever a project you wanted to work on that you didn't get? Yes. Um, I was interviewed for a band called Big Country. Right. And this was before an album called uh, Peace in Our Time. I lost the gig to a guy named Peter Wolf, not the Peter Wolf from the Jay Giles Band, but a producer, Peter Wolf. Okay. And he, well, let me back up. Big Country to me was one of the most unique rock bands ever. I mean, they, they were Scottish, and they, and they actually sounded scottish mm-hmm. and, and they were the first ones i ever heard ebos used on there's this real droning bagpipey right. almost sounding things and i loved that band and and i was overjoyed to get, be able to you know be interviewed for it 
And then when the album came out that I, that I didn't do that I was up for, it was totally not big country. It was very mellow and very down and just, oh, and I was like, you idiots. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was that was probably the biggest crusher of something that I was close to being able to do and didn't do. Was that the other the- one that I would have loved to have done but never really – it was, never came across was Rush. I would have loved to have done oh, that. Would have been, that's interesting to hear. Yeah. Um, and is that part of the process where you know they kind of talk to multiple producers to kind of get their take on it or here's our vision, what's your vision? Is it a, just a conversation? It was just a, me- a, a meeting with their manager. And then uh, I guess a meeting of however many people they, inter- they uh, interviewed, I have no idea. And that's the big country scenario. That's that's the big country one. But have you had have you had multiple scenarios like that where you're you're kind of in the running for a job, or you were just so you know, like you said, you had a full time job with the Eagles right, for so many years. Right. Um, there are a few things that that I've, for one reason or another, Bob Dylan took me on the road for three or four days to interview me, and uh, and, and he <laughs> the interview was very short. How did you? How do you make Hotel California? How do you make it sound like that? I said, "Well, we spend a lot of time, Bob. I don't have a lot of time." <laughs> End of interview. <laughs> um, is there anything uh, out there right now that's uh, catching your ear that you find interesting? I like uh, I like uh, some rock bands. I like uh, Silver Sun Pickups. I like uh, Young the Giant. Mm-hmm. I like uh, this. What's the new, newest one? Uh, uh, the, um, what is it? They might not. Uh, they might be giants. That's what it sounds no, like you're no, trying no, to say. Young the giant, <laughs> and then uh, thieves like us. <laughs> Excuse me. And uh, there's there's some bands like that. There's it's not very much. I love the new U2 record. I think that's really good. And that's about it. Are you? Um Still active, or are you retired? I'm. I'm really, really on the retired part of semi-retired. You're trying to retire. Trying to. Well, yeah. I'm. <laughs> I, I still. My son, my 30-year-old son, is a drummer, and he does stuff. He does. He had. A, he brought a band to me, and that he, you know, his band, and we did like three different versions of CD, ED, EPs, and then an album. Okay. And then uh, I still work with my good friend Michael Stanley. On a yearly basis, he'll he'll work for a year putting together stuff in his studio, his home studio, and then I'll load up after he's all done. He's got everything ready. I'll go take all my gear and put it in my car and drive up to his studio, plug it into his studio, and mix for two weeks and have a ball. That's fun. That's great. So that's about the extent of it. Okay. And and quite frankly, that's enough at this point. All right. Well, let's uh, we'll wrap it up with the. I'll, I'll call it the final five, which are the five questions everybody gets, but I have one more question after that. But uh, the first one is, um, what's your most prized musical possession? Prized musical possession? Probably my Grammy. I'll accept that. Pardon? <laughs> I said, I'll, I'll accept that. <laughs> That's a good one. You're my, I think you're, you're my first Grammy winner guest, so uh, <laughs> sure. Um, if I was to give you oh, $1 million to give to a charity, which one charity would get it? I had a different answer before, but I've changed it since then. And this time it would be move on. Move on the and political. I would, do it, I would give it to Tom Steyer, the uh, impeach now guy, but he's got enough money. He doesn't need my <laughs> mill. 
It's <laughs> <laughs> a good one. Um, number three is what would your walk-up music be to the pearly gates? The thrill is gone. <laughs> Let's hope not. It's going well, to be all good afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Um, and on the reverse side of that is what song is stuck on repeat in hell? The Macarena. <laughs> <laughs> I think we might have a lot of agreement with that one. Um, or wait a minute. I know one. He's, this is even better. And you hear it at every every basketball game. Everybody, clap your hands. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> I think everything on that uh, that like jock jam CD is pretty much yeah despicable. Take your pick. One of those two. <laughs> um, last one is uh, best concert you've ever seen. The first time I saw the Who. When was that? Sixty eight. Sixty yeah, sixty eight. So it's when they're firing in all cylinders, oh, they're boy. young. Oh, boy. I can oh, imagine. Boy. Where was that? It was in Ohio. Joe Wall- the James Gang opened for him. I, I, re- I remember Joe and I sitting in, in the, it was in a theater, and we're sitting in the, like the, the pit. We had no seat because no, nobody could be in there. But we, you know, because Joe was in the band, we had backstage, we're down there. And I'm looking up and going, I'm just stunned at these guys. I bet. That's cool. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. Last questions, I guess. The Eagles are coming to town in April. I, I won't be here. Oh, you won't? No. Oh, I was going to say. A, I'll be on a 54-day cruise with my wife. Oh, okay. Good. <laughs> I was going to say, what, what, what's a day like? What's that day going to be like? You're going to stop by for a sound check? You're going to have dinner well, with the boys? Well, just recently they played in Greensboro. Right. And we did go up to that. And it's the first time I'd seen them since Glenn, Glenn's passing. Pass. And... And I'll just tell you that when when Glenn died, uh, I thought that was it. I mean, and even Henley has said right after that that well, that the band will never play again. So when they started this, you know, rumors were happening about they're going to go back on the road again. I was like, really? You really want to do that? You know? And and uh, my wife and I went round and round about this. I said it's just it's just not right. I said it's just not right that they do this. And, I mean, you know, Vince Gill's okay and all that. But once it, once I actually saw them with Vince and with, with the deacon, mm-hmm. Glenn Fry's son, and talked to everybody, it was, okay, now I, now I give them my, as if they need it, right? right, right you know, right. if they need my blessing, not. <laughs> but uh, I'm, finally, I'm finally okay with it. Okay. But initially I was like, really? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, it was, it was really Glenn and Don, wasn't it? The, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. And, and I just I couldn't. And then, but but then we we, we like I said, we went up to Greensboro, and I went and did go to the, the sound check and everything. And I'm happy to see that it isn't just the Don Henley show, right? Joe's taken a lot of responsibility for this, and and he's like he's rehearsing the horns, you know. This is what we got to do here, and you know, like, and I'm watching him really doing hands-on stuff, and. And he's he's one of my best friends, so I'm I'm happy for that. That's great to see. He, I mean, he's gosh, he's the second longest tenured men, at this member point, now. Yeah, right? at this point. Yeah. So I'm wondering, with Vince Gill and Deacon, you know, do they have this new energy? You know, new songs. They want to record. Bill, <laughs> get on a plane. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. <laughs> I will tell you a funny Vince Gill story. I'd never met him, and uh, we actually met at a. An event in Colorado where, where it was uh, Joe Welch and Barnstorm 
and were being inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame, along with Caribou Ranch and Dan Fogelberg, the late Dan Fogelberg. Mm-hmm. And so there was this uh, tribute album for Dan Fogelberg, and Vince Gill and Amy Grant did one of the songs, you know, on, on the tribute album. So they're there to do their song, and, you know, it's a whole day-long concert thing. It was great. So it's the first time I meet Vince Gill. And I said, so what was that first gig like? That was when they did the East Coast, West Coast thing, you right, know, right. one in Dodger Stadium and then one in City Field in right. New York. And he said, the first gig, he said, was nothing but white noise. <laughs> he said, I don't remember a thing. Oh, I said, what about the second one? He goes, he said, I got through that. It was okay. He's, and then he told me, he said, I got to tell you something. He said, when they asked me, I had never seen the history of the Eagles. So I got it, you know, and I, and I went in and went, I went in the TV room and he said, and I watched it. I came out and I told Amy, I'm not fucking going. <laughs> <laughs> I cracked up over that. That's fu- I mean, that's funny hearing that from a veteran like him. Yeah. Like that's, wow. <laughs> he floored me with that one. Gosh. I'm not fucking going. <laughs> I said, well, you did. He goes, yeah, I, here I am. It's <laughs> fantastic. Well, Bill, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Oh, you're, second, I hope you got it all. <laughs> second time lucky. Hey, we, we've covered it. My, my pleasure, Tim. All right. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. All right. A huge, huge thanks to Bill Simzik for doing the podcast. This was actually the second time we spoke. The first time we talked, I had recorded our conversation to what I thought was a 32 gigabyte SIM card, and it turned out that the small print actually said 32 megabytes, so I got about five minutes of an hour-long conversation. So to my horror, I had to go back to Bill with my tail between my legs and ask for a redo, which he graciously granted. So big, big thanks to Bill. I can't thank him enough. All right, we'll be back next week with an all-new episode with a ghost from MTV's past. So tune in and find out who that's going to be. And that's all I've got for you this week. Rockonomics episode 21 is in the can. Good night, Cleveland. <laughs>